Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast. If you want more information on the things we're doing, like sermons or podcasts, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. So I'm here with Pastor Parker. Hi, Parker. Hey, guys. Is it is it weird hearing your name with Pastor in front of it now? Yeah, it is kind of weird. It I took just, a while. Just like Parker. It took a while for me to get used <laughs> to it as well. So we did a, a sermon a couple weeks ago on the end times, or I did, and it was super fun because I love talking about the end times. It's my favorite topic. The reason why I say what I say in the sermon and elsewhere is I don't love talking about the end times because it hasn't happened yet. The rest of biblical history, for the most part, has already happened. So it's a whole lot easier to teach something that you know is going to happen exactly the way you know it's going to happen. With the end times, it hasn't happened yet. So we can get a lot of things wrong. Correct? But at the same time, we have all the answers. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Kidding. No, but that's kind of the hope that we're going to kind of play with today. Like That's really what we're going to aim for, what we're going to talk about. So if you're looking for the passage, Mark 13, verse 1, all the way through 14, 2 is what we covered. But Parker and I are going to spend most of our time just in chapter 13 today. So if there's a verse reference, it's if we don't give you the chapter, chapter and book, it's going to be Mark 13, and then we'll just give you the verse in random places. But there's a couple of key terms we need to kind of lay out, and then we're going to kind of walk through a couple of different views of the end times, which is going to be tough to translate to the podcast. And then we're going to end with just some thoughts that I think are important for us to kind of think about. So even after I got done with that sermon, I've had people come up to me and say, when are you going to start teaching prophecy? <laughs> oh, my goodness. In some sense, I teach prophecy every week, but that's a whole nother discussion. So. Pastor Parker, what are some key terms that we need to lay down? Yeah, let's first start off with parousia. Ooh. What an interesting term. Parousia just means Christ's second coming or Christ's return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can see that in verse 26 of Mark 13. Yeah, and the word just means really sort of an unveiling, like a, an appearance. And it mm-hmm. usually has something to do with glory. So the the, the the early disciples started using it to describe his coming. All right. The elect is mentioned in verse 27 and a couple other places also in, in chapter 13. And those are just God's chosen people. And I think one of the things that we need to wrestle with, not on this podcast, but as a Christian is, are you seeing God's chosen people as just the Israelites or just the church, some blend of either? And it, no matter which direction you go there, you're making a decision that's going to color the way you view the text. So be very wise with that. What's the next one? Yeah, next one, kind of more of, of, of a concept here or term called rapture. That's from the, the Greek verb arpazo. Arpazo, very fun. That's kind of fun to say. Arpazo. It is fun. Um, some translations taken up, uh, snatched up, but this is all for God's glory. So this is a good thing, not like being taken or stolen, sure. but as God returns, is parousia, Christ's second coming or Christ returning, he's going to rapture or take up, take his chosen people, the elect. Yeah. And that word, you hear it rapture in our language, it comes, it's the same word as raptor, which they were named that because they snatched things up. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very similar. And we see that in First Thessalonians 4.17. That's the key verse that everyone uses for the rapture. 
And then, like we said, we see that in Mark 13 as well. Uh, all right, tribulation is something that happens throughout Scripture a couple different times. But the, the term that's used for the end times when we talk about tribulation uh, is, is pressure that is sometimes translated as oppression or affliction or distress. So something that's really, yeah, pressing down, heavy, something that you're going through that's difficult, that's not fun at all. And the Greek word for that is? Philipsis. I, I, I saw the Greek word there and I thought, oh, I want to just, I want to push his Greek. Philipsis. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Philipsis. Uh, so yeah. So tribulation is, you. You. We, most of us think about it, we think of a seven-year tribulation. There's a reason for that. I don't know how much that we're going to get into that in this podcast, but the idea that, yeah, pressure is going to be given near the end and that pressure, that affliction, that distress is going to create something that eventually is going to be saved from. And that's when we're saved from it, we're going to move into what is called the millennium. Correct. Yes. Christ's thousand year reign. There's a couple different views on the thousand year reign. Is it a literal one? Meaning one comma zero, 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 1000 sure. years, or is it more of an era, a golden age, something like that, which is something we'll talk about more later on. Yeah. And those things are important and they lead into all these different views of the end times. So with that said, as we move into the end times, some of the decisions you have to make are kind of big. Most of them are affected by the way that you view the text in other ways. So what most of us don't think about, I think most of us just think, I open the Bible, I just read it, whatever it says I do. That's true. And at a base level, you can just wade into the kiddie pool of the Bible and you'll have everything you need. You can get saved. You can spend an eternity with Christ. You're good to go. The problem is the Bible is a very complicated document that has a lot of things going on that most of us don't notice until we dig further and further and further. And what's amazing is computers have made it even more complicated for us because we see things now that we maybe wouldn't have seen beforehand. But with that said, when you're typically talking about end times or you're trying to build a biblical theology for something, you are coming at it from a perspective. And those perspectives can be all different kinds. And so one would be what we might call the strict or literal perspective. Are we going to take the Bible literally, which means are we going to take it and, and really believe what it is saying in every possible way? What's interesting is even if you take a literal view of the Bible, there are going to be portions of the scriptures that you say, well, clearly they don't take that literally, right? Uh, a man is not really a tree, someone. There, that's that's clearly a metaphor. But then they would say, okay, poetry, we're going to leave that literal, but then other places we're going to let it do whatever it's going to do. The problem is there are other par parts of the Bible that clearly seem to be poetry. So then you say, do you take this literally? Do you take it, or do you take it more figuratively? But if you're going to take a literal translation of the Bible or look at it more, more literally, you're going to end up with an end times view that lines up probably more with most of evangelicalism mm -hmm. in, in many regards. What's another approach you could take? Yeah, a historical approach. So what is happening historically? Are there certain events that have to happen in order for uh, the end times to come about? What's going on in history? I mean, it speaks for itself, historical. Yeah, That's another approach. The other one is kind of more out of... Uh, there's various theological schools that are that approach it this way, but we, we call it a covenantal approach. And what the covenantal approach would say is based on the fact that there are multiple covenants throughout the Bible, uh, and depending on who which covenants you're going to use, the big ones are usually the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the new covenant given to us in Jeremiah. Those are usually the, the big three, but then, you know, usually you talk about Abrahamic. Some have even talked about the Adamic covenant, um, but Noahic, Mosaic, Davidic, new are the ones that we spend the most time on. And 
the idea would be that as we kind of move through the scriptures, there's something happening in covenants that God is doing something that we need to look at and think about and and perceive. And so then moving into the end times, then this is God moving into a new covenantal period of some sort. Or, uh, and so then you have to grapple with that and kind of think about it. What's the one of the other big questions or ways that we could look at at the scriptures in general from biblical theology. Yeah, if we think of it from a redemptive uh, perspective or approach it in a redemptive mindset, uh, thinking about how do the Old Testament and the New Testament or the beginning and the end, how do they come about? Well, some people think that's through a redemptive context or a historical redemptive event, that being Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, so Jesus saving us becomes sort of the lens that we view the rest of the scriptures through. And because Jesus's ultimate goal is to redeem humanity, then the redemptive view says what the end times then is God's ultimate redemption of the story that was broken back in Genesis chapter three. Now, just to be clear, you could take two or three of these questions and wrap them together and say, I believe all of those things at the same time. So we're not necessarily saying these are at odds with one another, but you do need to kind of know when you're talking to someone who quote calls himself quote a prophecy expert or end quote or whatever, there, there's something about them. They are deciding how to view things, usually through one or more of these lenses, and then that's where they land where they land. And what might be surprising to a lot of us is you can come up with different ways to view these exact same events. It's not that they're not happening. It's just how they are translated or how they are interpreted could be quite different. All right. So like I said, this isn't going to necessarily translate well to the podcast, but we do want to give you all the information. And plus, you're listening to a podcast. If you don't like this already, you left it. <laughs> you went to another episode altogether. Yeah. So if you're listening to this still, just don't, just know that visually I will put something in the show notes that talk about these four different views of the end times. But the best way to kind of break these down is probably to take our Park Hills 101 class. We offer that twice a year. That is your on-ramp for membership. And we usually spend a good chunk of the afternoon uh, just kind of working through these four different views and explaining why the free church has landed, where the free church has landed. So with that said, the first one is what we would call dispensational premillennialism, which is... <laughs> Why people mouthful people might have just turned this off, right? So dispensational premillennialism and, and Parker, how would we kind of break that down? What does that look like? Yeah, just just kind of a general description of dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism. Already struggling with that. Yeah, uh, Christ will come before a literal seven-year tribulation. We call that pre-trib or pre-tribulation, and the elect which in this case is Israel, God's chosen people, will be taken up mm-hmm. or raptured soon after that. Uh, sorry, before that, excuse me. And then after this seven-year tri- tribulation and the rapture, Christ returns second time, and Christ will reign for a literal thousand years while Satan is bound. And then after the 1,000 years, this millennial, again, Christ's 1,000-year reign, Satan will be released, and there'll be a big old battle between Christ, the good king, and Satan, the evil one. Yeah, and often in dispensationalism, when you say God's people, Israel, will be raptured, they see it typically as we are the engrafted branches. So even though we are not Israelite, we are joining the Israelites in this rapture. So it'd be anyone who believes in Christ as Messiah, they are the true Israel. Anyone who doesn't is left here on earth. 
uh, some versions of this say that those that are left here that are a part of Israel but are not the true Israel become the 144,000 potentially that are walking around the planet kind of doing their thing. There are some in dispensationalism that would push on the, tr- the pre-trib view, but this is the most often viewed way of looking at it. So that pre-trib means before the tribulation, like, like Parker just said. Um, but just know there are variances to all of these things. We're, we're, we're kind of giving you like the most basic understanding of each of these. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're going, well, that's the view of the end times. It's the only one. You probably read Left Behind. You probably grew up in an, <laughs> in, in an American evangelical church. And this is where most of us land for various reasons. Uh, there's a lot of scripture that kind of points to at least aspects of this. But I think most of us would also say, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go down, but this makes the most sense to us. All right. So the second one, so that first one was dispensational premillennialism or dispensationalism in general, which became real popular in the 1850s and then, you know, kind of has held its own until now, but it's quite American in many ways. And, you know, that's, that's sort of its thing. The, the second probably most popular today that someone could hold on to uh, is historical premillennialism. This, this is more throughout the whole world. It's similar to the, the dispensational premillennialism, but here's what historical premillennialism makes a little different. Historical events needed to take place before Christ returns. In many ways, those have already happened, right? Christ came, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven. So at some point, he's going to come again after a time of tribulation. Some have said that's seven years, some will say that's that's more, but we would then call that post-trib. So typically after the tribulation, Christ is going to return. And as he returns, we're raptured. And then he reigns for a thousand years at this point. And then, you know, the, the rest of the end times kind of go on from there. Historical premillennialism is what most have believed throughout history if you've held to a premillennial view. Like I said, dispensational premillennialism took over in the late 1800s and became all the rage, especially in the evangelical movements. But you'll still find some that are outside of the evangelical movement, but are still holding to scripture as literal, leaning more this direction. Uh, The third one that Parker's going to take on right now was real popular up until World War I and II, and you'll start to hear why in just a second. So describe post-millennialism for us. Yeah, post-millennialism. If you haven't figured it out by now, it's pretty clear when Christ comes based on the term. Pre, meaning before. Right. Now post, meaning after. So Christ will return after an era or a figurative thousand-year reign, this uh, golden age. I'm doing some air quotes as I say that. But this golden age in which Christ reigns through the process of his people, Christians, the elect, however you want to say that, spreading his gospel, the gospel. And after the majority of these Christians, followers of Christ, church elect again, he will then return after the tribulation, post-trib, post-tribulation, and after that millennium, that figurative thousand-year reign. So the way that most have viewed this throughout history is that we might already be in the millennium right now is how many have viewed this. And you can imagine, especially in late 1800s Europe, 
this started to take off in Europe because they were thinking, this is the golden age. Look at what we've got. We've got churches that are full. Everybody loves everybody, which wasn't true. Uh, you know, there's no racism. We've ended slavery. Look at what God's doing. This is amazing. Oh, the workers, we've taken care of them. They have eight-hour work days. We have now officially built God's kingdom here on earth. So this sometimes can get attached to what we would call kingdom theology, this idea that we are actually ushering in the reign of Christ. And so the idea is that in human history, we're really messed up, but we can actually, through Christ leading, get us to a spot where we have now ushered in his kingdom by our power, by us doing what we're supposed to be doing. That's not to say that we're in charge, but that by us serving Christ, we can build his kingdom here on earth. And then in so doing, he's going to return and we're going to go, yeah, reign forever now. You're good to go. And this thousand year reign could be an entire thousand years, or it could be, like you said, figurative thousand years. And we just go, it's been great for 200 years. This must be it. And then Christ returns. We're like, yep, that's it. We were totally right. What's ironic is, some of the post-millennial discussion, uh, and I don't want to, I want to be careful here with what I'm saying, and I want you to hear me loud and clear, listener. I'm not making correlations to post-millennialism and Hitler, but I will say part of what Hitler was aiming for when he talked about the Third Reich, that was a thousand-year reign. So what he had taken was some of these ideas of this idea, and he had twisted them and molded them into a, a German people having a thousand-year reign. And you, you know how that went well in history. Didn't didn't go well at all. But after World War One and World War II, post-millennialism has now almost completely vanished from the planet. So whereas things were seemingly moving in the right direction toward the end of the 1800s, in the middle of the 20th century, the 1900s, we realized this is not happening. Humankind is never going to get out of this. This is really, really bad. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if things keep going well that eventually post-millennialism comes back as a popular view, right? AI and everything else will save us. And so let's, you know, here we go. We're ushering in the new the new world order or something. Uh, there are some probably that still hold to something like this view, but you can understand why most of us have said, nah, probably not good. All right. Amillennialism. Why don't you take that one too? <clears throat> sure. Amillennialism, uh, sometimes called inaugurated millennialism or nunc millennialism. Nunc. We'll talk about that some more, but essentially, again, generally God's kingdom was inaugurated when Christ was resurrected from the dead. And ever since the resurrection, Christ has been reigning now, nunc. He's reigning now, nunc, through mm -hmm. God's kingdom, which kind of the picture that I have here is uh, Christ is seated at the right hand of the right. Father, right. and he is reigning over creation. Right. Yes. And so, especially his elect, his chosen people, which are those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the church, as we would call them. Um, and then this era is the sometimes quoted as already but not yet era, right. or already but not yet, as in Christ has already inaugurated the kingdom, but it is not fully yet established and right. he's coming back. And so after this era or figurative reign, Christ will return. But my question to you, Chris, is where is the tribulation? Is there such thing as an A-trib period, amillennial, A-trib? <laughs> you know what I'm kind of yeah. get where I'm going there. No, it's one of the downsides to the amillennial view is that there is no tribulation. Uh, I will say I have a lot of friends that hold the amill view. So almost everyone that I know holds to either dispensational premillennialism or amill. So in America, 
those are the two strongest views. You'll find the Amil view in a lot of reformed circles uh, that are looking at the kingdom that Christ has already inaugurated. And part of the reason why the reformed circles tend to stick to this more is uh, part of what Calvin was doing in Zurich was sort of trying to say, Christ is already in charge. Let's live like it now. And so there were a number of kingdoms that were set up throughout Europe and, and even some in America would say today, we need to reign. So that's why we need a king that's, you know, a president who's going to do what we want him to do. And we need the states to follow the, the rules because from an ah mill view, Christ is already in charge. So the world's just got to fall into his uh, understanding. It's a little different, a lot different than, than post mill. Um, but there is no tribulation in the ah mill view, or they would say the tribulation has already happened and it was the early church. It's typically how I've heard it described to me. But I want you to know, based on these four views, we've just laid out the big four. Those are the four that most of the people in the world uh, have held to. And really, for the first 1,800 years of, of church history, there were really only three views, either pre, post, or amil. Those were the only three views you took. Dispensational premillennialism became sort of the fourth road, which is really just a, a diversion from the original premillennial view. Most that you'll find in the evangelical church hold to that first view that we brought up, the dispensational premillennial um, view. But like I said, a lot of Americans today might also hold an Amil view. Let me be honest. Most Americans don't care about any of this. They're not, <laughs> they're not in the church. They're not yeah. talking about this. Uh, but, but those are the four views. I, I think based on what we said at the beginning of the podcast, whichever direction you're going to go, you're making a decision that affects how you're going to view the text and also changes, uh, you know, perhaps your understanding of what the end times is going to be like and what you think God's kingdom is all about. And so you can understand with the vast difference between dispensational premillennialism and amillennialism, why the free church, especially early on, we put it in our statement that we believe in the premillennial reign of Christ, because we're taking more of a literal view of the Bible. We're looking at it and saying, we believe Revelation to be telling the truth in the way that it tells it. We do believe in a literal thousand year reign, whether it's an exact thousand years or really close. Uh, and we do believe there's going to be a period of time where the tribulation is going to get really bad. And we, we take Revelation quite seriously in that regard. There's going to be this period of time where people are unleashed for three and a half years and then three and a half more years. And, the, and during all of that, God's going to pour out the bowls and the, you know, the, the trumpets are going to be blown and the, uh, the cups are going to be poured out. Like, it's just going to be crazy, crazier than anything we've ever expected. Whereas an Amil view would say, no, that's not going to happen. He's already reigning. Let's just follow him and, and go there. Okay, all that to say, like I said, it doesn't translate well to the podcast. I am going to put that, that visual in there for you. But what is this really, why, why does it matter? So what are some of the key points from Mark 13? That as, as I was preaching it, Parker, what were you thinking about uh, wanting people to know about the end times? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, if you just look at the portion of scripture that you were preaching through, or some people would read through, right? This is the longest speech yeah. that Jesus gives us in Mark's gospel. So like, what does that indicate? This is important. Listen yeah. up. Like this is, he's saying a bunch of stuff here. So pay attention and giddy up. Cause we're going on a ride. He's taking us somewhere with his conversation or with his speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's probably one of the biggest points. Uh, if we look at the beginning too of Mark 13, Mark chapter 13, first couple verses there, um, we can see, I'll go ahead and read them real quick, sure. if that's okay. Uh, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be 
they will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What's what's going on there? Yeah, and like I said in the sermon, th- this is this would be the worst news that anyone's ever heard if you're a yeah. Jew, right? Because it's not just a, a special building in the capital city of Israel. It's also the place where God dwells with humans. And so if, if that's going to get destroyed, what are we going to do? What's amazing is they're standing there with God as he says this, right? God already is in yeah. their midst. He's hanging out with them. And that's one of the things that we need to think about. He is not just started the work, but he's going to come back and he's going to finish it. And so even though you think the temple being destroyed is the worst thing ever, no, the worst thing ever would be the Savior dying on the cross, except, oh, wait, that that frees us. And then he rose from the grave. All right, that's awesome. And then he's going to come again and finish what he started. That's good news. It's better news than the temple. Yeah. So a building can't do what Christ can do. So we should be aware of that. And so in that sense, the here and now is not nearly as important as what is to come. Jesus is on his way back. And so even us, we need to be thinking that way. You know, I I said many of us can get lulled back to sleep because it's been 2000 years at this point. The message at the end of this, of this chapter is the same. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Pay attention. Stay true. Stick to your guns. Make sure that you're, you're doing what Jesus wants you to do. I don't mean sticking to literal guns, by the way, Uh, that's a whole other discussion. So what happens then in the next section of the chapter? Yeah, the, the next section of the chapter, that would be, we could break it up into, you know, verses 5 through 13. Sure. But that's, that's kind of what I went with. Went with. Um, and this big section is considered the beginning of the birth pangs. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that means. The birth <laughs> pangs or the pain, pains of birth. Can you, sure. can you say that? <laughs> yeah, there's a, well, I mean... Hopefully you'll find out someday uh, what happens when the beginning of the birth pangs come. That means you got to get your bag ready and get ready because oh, okay. you got to yeah, run yeah. to the hospital and there's a baby <laughs> coming. Uh, but you're not there yet, so we, we won't talk about that anymore. Uh, but the idea, yeah, is that there's there's signs that things are coming and be aware of those signs and then, you know, be be alert, pay attention, get ready, get the car ready, get get heading. And so what Jesus is saying is, you know, it'll be better for you if you know it's coming and then also get out of there as quickly as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the next section, verses 14 through 23, he really gives an encouragement. Don't follow into the false teaching, run away from the false teaching, follow my commands, pay attention to my word, make sure that you know what's going on. Uh, and that I think is what's going to happen during the midst of this tribulation. I think that's the best reading of the text. There is something coming that's going to be so tremendously bad, back to that abomination of desolation idea, that people are going to be fleeing, and yet there are also going to be other individuals that start to show us how powerful and amazing they are, and the world's going to want to follow. And Jesus is going, don't follow them. Stick with me. Make sure you're on my side. All right, then what's after that? Yeah, yeah, verses 24 through 27, right? We see after that tribulation, and so many people can get stuck on that word after. Okay, Post-trib, post-trib, it makes sense. It's after the tribulation. That makes 100% sense. But then we lose sight of what's next after that tribulation. Then they will see the Son of Man. I think that's the more important part here is, hey, Jesus is the Son of Man, and he's coming back. He is who he says he is, Mm -hmm. and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. He's coming back. Why are nowadays, more so nowadays, why would we get so wrapped up in what's right, what's right or what's wrong than rather than we know mm-hmm. what's right. And that's Jesus is coming back. Do we know exactly how? Well, we talk about that a little bit later in the, um, in the chapter. Yeah. 
But then after that, right, after the Son yep. of Man comes back, then he will send out the angels and gather the elect. Yeah. Okay, so Jesus comes back. All right, we're going to be raptured after that. Again, that's that post-trib idea. It would cause you to think that. But the main point here, and I don't want us to lose sight of the main point, is that Jesus is the Son of Man, mm -hmm. which is a huge point in Mark, and I think Mark makes that very clear. And he is coming back. Totally. Well, and the big question there is, what is that tribulation? Is that, when he says that in verse 24, is that the seven-year tribulation, or is that the tribulation leading up to the seven years? And that's where scholars, whether depending on which view they take, that's kind of where they, they land and they argue about it and sort of decide. But you're totally right. The key point is, he's coming back. He's going to gather the elect. We're going to be with him. We're going to be good to go. And then verse 28 through 31, we know that his, his coming is near, and he tells us to be looking for the signs, right? Think about the fig tree. You know when it's going to... You know, when the fruit is growing, you know about how long that's going to take. So he's like, know the signs so that when all this starts to go down, you're going, oh, I know exactly what's happening. Whether that is the signs that the tribulation are near or whether that's the signs that you're actually in the midst of the tribulation, depending on which view of the tribulation you're going to hold. Either way, pay attention to the signs, know what's happening so that you know to stay focused on him and stay in him so that he can accomplish what he wants to accomplish in and through you. And then our last section there, 32 through 37, says what? Yeah, it, essentially, we're not God, right? Right. We're not God. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows the exact time, the exact moment, when it's going to happen. In the meantime, right, we better be on guard, on watch, prayerful, um, and uh, praying, praying to God. You know, there's, there's a verse in there. I don't know how you would take this, but let it not be in winter. And then mm -hmm. be careful— wives who are pregnant. What, what do you take of that, Chris? I think he's just saying the people who are in a, in a less defensible position at this moment are going to wish that they weren't alive at that point. Gotcha. Right. So if you're pregnant, you're, you're going, I can't get in, you know, I can't move as fast as I used to move. What's going on. And Jesus is saying, it'd be better for people not to be in that position. Now we have people in our world that would go, well, Jesus should wait till nobody's pregnant. <laughs> You know, you know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. people in our world that are like, that seems really cruel that he would say this. No, what he's pointing out is you need to be ready and you need to be so ready that even if you've got things that are holding you back, maybe don't focus on those as much. Stay true to the things that matter so that you're ready to go when the time comes. He's not telling you not to get pregnant. He's also not telling people that pregnant women are going to suffer more in the tribulation than others. He's just saying, be aware of that. And what's crazy is throughout history, this happens where all of a sudden you're just living your normal life and then you find out that Pearl Harbor was bombed, right? Or you're you're living in, uh, you know, Europe in the 1915, 16, 17 area, and all of a sudden, uh, right before that, somebody shoots somebody, and then next thing you know, every single country is in a war, and you're like, what is going on? And then you're drafted, and you're thrown into the mix of it. Our, our world changes on a dime, right? I mean, we never thought Russia would actually invade Ukraine, and then all of a sudden it happened. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? But the point is, Jesus is saying, stay alert, be aware. You might be in a bad position when the time comes. Woe to those people. But that doesn't mean like, well, I'm pregnant, so therefore I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Okay, no, that's ridiculous. That's not the point. So the point is to stay awake and pay attention. Yeah, because again, right, Jesus is coming back. So what are we doing in light of that truth today? Yeah. What are we doing knowing that Jesus is coming back and knowing that our job or our position, our responsibility is not to determine that, but to be ready for when that comes. 